Hey friends, welcome to Garden Church Podcast. This is a series called Jesus People. We are looking at who Jesus is and how we become more like him. Jesus People are God's strategy for transforming the world. We hope you enjoy this podcast. For more information, go to garden.church. Well, we've been in this uh, conversation uh, on what it means to be uh, Jesus people, and particularly those who have been shaped by by proximity to Jesus, who um, by that by that awareness have become um, kind of um, shaped in such a way that other people in relationship with them notice something different, and they take note as the book of Acts says that they've been with Jesus. They take note that they've been with Jesus. In other words, the, the primary function, if you will, of our worship gatherings, of our study of the word, of our reading, of all of the practices that we've been inviting you into is not just so that you and Jesus can have hang time. We want you to do that. But if there's no fragrance of Jesus, no aroma of Jesus, no character of Jesus that then works its way out when you punch in at work on Monday morning, we've kind of lost the plot. If this is the main event, rather than a pit stop, we've lost the plot. Um, Because the world that God loves so much doesn't gather here just on Sunday mornings they wouldn't even think of darkening the door of this place. And if we're waiting, fingers crossed, for them to come here, we're going to wait a long time. First of all, because there's no room for them. But also because that's never been God's plan. It's never been God's plan that the world comes here. It's always been from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, Darren talked about this last week, would be that the people of God go to those who are the people of God and don't know it yet. Because we're children of the same father. And we want to let our brothers and sisters, and particularly those that make our skin crawl, that they're also invited to the table. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. The fact of the matter is that most of us will spend most of our adult lives in some form of employment. I want to suggest to you that there is no sacred secular divide when it comes to that. That what you do here on Sunday, maybe even as a volunteer, and God bless you, thank you so much for all of the ways that volunteers serve, but we only need about 15 to 20% of the people who call Garden Church home to run the thing. That means 80 to 85% of the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to the church are intended not to be used in the church, but as the church in the world. I need to underline that again, because I grew up in a classical Pentecostal charismatic environment, and we, I mean, gifts of the Spirit were kind of our, our, our shtick, you know? We, we, we knew what that, and, and Sunday was the, the platform. But then you do the math and read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, and you realize, oh wait, that only accounts for a tiny percentage of the things that the Holy Spirit is capable of. Apparently, the Holy Spirit knows something about software writing code. 
He knows something about engineering. He knows something about um, retail sales. He knows something about medicine. He knows something uh, about uh, caretaking and uh, maintenance. He, he's a whiz at auto mechanics. We discovered in the pandemic that the Holy Spirit knows how to Zoom. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So why do we think this is the realm of the Spirit and out there I'm kind of on my own? So I want to think with you this morning about work as a spiritual practice. Not, not simply as the, as the way of resourcing spiritual things or ministry, which is what happens in church, but I want you, if I can, and, and this is a switch maybe for some of y'all, we've talked about this at various levels, but I think it's important that we start to realize that what you do on Monday is every bit a place of ministry than the songs, as the songs you offer on Sunday. So this idea here of work as a spiritual practice, this is really important, especially in the light of the great resignation of the, the huge percentages of people who just didn't go back to work after uh, pandemic, uh, in the reordering of the workforce forced by pandemic and the massive shift that is going to occur uh, in the next few years as my generation uh, passes the baton uh, off and a, a huge transfer of, of wealth, of responsibility. And right now, there is not a lot of promise in, in the pipeline for many of those things being handed off. And I'm not talking about professional workers. I'm talking about plumbers and electricians and welders and uh, truck drivers and people who work the docks and who captain the ships, that, that there, there is a, a, a deficit that is looming. And I would love to see those filled with people who smell like Jesus. I would love to see those positions filled with people who when they occupy the boardrooms and the uh, places of when they stand behind the cash register, emanating from them is the knowledge that they've been with Jesus, that they do those things in Jesus' name. And I know this is silly for me to remind you of this because you always have this already in your head, but let's be clear. Jesus spent the first 20 years of his professional career as a day laborer. That was, I believe, every bit as important in his thinking, Paul tells us this, as what he did in the three and a half years of which we have the most record. So Jesus didn't come to help us escape our life. He came to teach us how to live our life. So what would it look like for you to be a nurse practitioner in Jesus' name? What would it look like for you to be a preschool teacher in Jesus' name? What would it look like for you to be the manager of a restaurant in Jesus' name or a wait staff in Jesus' name? Because if you can't imagine Jesus doing any of those things, you got the wrong Jesus. You need to trade that one in and get a real one because he knows stuff. 
He knows how to do stuff. And he wants to, you to do whatever it is you do as he would do it if he were you. That's what the practices are about. Does that make sense? So, so, so this, is, this is salt and light territory. He's, he makes this very clear. Uh, you're, you're salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Um, um, it, 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 people will see your good work and glorify your father who is in heaven. We have often reduced that to works that we think are things that would glorify God. Uh, i.e. miracles, uh, care for the indigent, care for the homeless, care for uh, people in, in extreme circumstance, and, and do all of those things. But it also includes how you serve as a first responder. It also means how you manage your entrepreneurial instincts. It also includes, God wants to be glorified as people look in and see how you do that as a skilled laborer in arts, entertainment, as you write a script, as you uh, do code, whatever it is you do, teaching, medicine, law, practice of law. We need, we need military people in Jesus' name. And, and I know this is maybe a little different than, than what we have thought about, but if we don't begin to practice these things as spiritual disciplines, we will wonder what's happened to the world, and we will wonder what, when the bottom fell out. Uh, because I think you're already starting to see how the center is failing. We need women and men who will go into politics in Jesus' name, who will be marked less by partisan concerns and more by kingdom values. Not just in the what, but in the how. So what does this look like? What does this um, invite us into? The fact of the matter is we are parts of God's image and as parts of God's image, we are to work because how did we get here? Well, God worked. Genesis chapter two makes it clear. Sabbath only makes sense in the light of the first six days of work. We love Sabbath. We talk about Sabbath. Garden City, anyone. But Sabbath always is in the context of work. Always. And so how do we, who are images, parts of the image of a God who knows how to work, knows how to get things done, who created us to be co-creators with him. When he said, when he looked at you, this is good. No, no, he, he looked at you and said, this is good. This, this works. This is beautiful. He invited you in that declaration to be fully who you are and to partner with him in extending his creation of love. That's what it means to be co-creators. We get to join the, 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 the plants and the animals. We get to join the, the, the earth itself, all of which heard that same pronouncement. This is good. When God says that, he releases his creation with capacity for its life and without control over the wonder that emerges out of that goodness. So co-creation is what we're here for. 
And that is that uh, opportunity to bring like he did, order out of chaos, to join him in the making of things, to join him in the hard work of, um, uh, of, of co-creation. Genesis chapter two, verse seven, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. He there put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was a tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then down to verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it to take care of it. Work is not the result of the curse. Heaven will not be a time, if you will, of leisure. Heaven will be a time of industry. Can you imagine an unfallen creativity? Can you imagine an artist, an engineer, a software designer, who has, in the name of Jesus, been set free from the constraints of their brokenness and begins to create the wonder that we are built for in this similar passage. So God creates us of the dust of the earth, puts us in Eden, and gives us responsibility to care for that place. And remember, Eden is this paradisical Uh, uh, a place that is built for us and we in some ways for it and this is this is our destiny I use the language of heaven euphemistically we've talked about this often enough that I don't think I need to remind you you're not going to heaven as some far off distant place separated from earth you're built for Eden you're built for paradise you're built for a place where there's stuff to do and you're invited to step in in the doing of it. And it's this beautiful, wonderful image of Eden as this in-between space. It's, it's, it's a material world, but it's also a spiritual realm, just like you. You're a material being, dirt, but into your lungs is breathed the breath of life, the breath of deity. You are this combination. So imagine what work will look like in that liminal space, looking both up in adoration and down in, if you will, in stewardship and responsibility. So this idea here is how we partner with God. Work is an expression of identity. Can I just underline that? It's not your identity. You are not first an engineer. You are first beloved child of God who engineers as an expression of your identity. It's really important because in our culture, we've turned it upside down. Who are you? What are you? We always answer in terms of the, and sometimes apologetically, I'm just a. No, you don't get to do that anymore. You are an eternal being with a bright future in God's great kingdom. Don't you dare diminish the ways that gets expressed in the world. Do do, do you see what I'm after here? Don't look at your job to bring meaning to you. That's, it's not capable of that. You're eternal, your job isn't. So you bring eternal life to whatever it is you do. Even if it's adding a column of figures twice and getting the same total both times. That's a real skill. 
It is missing in our calculator age. I have a watch that helps me. My calculator watch. I get more comments on my watch. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, 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 but does, does that make sense? So we're invited in this co-creative capacity. That creation is fundamental. Learning of it, respect for it, uh, of, of creation is fundamental. And, and honoring it, notice, it, it, to care for this, this wonderful place that we have been given, and which, I'm, frankly, I think we're, we're kind of dropping the ball on in the care of creation. What might it look like for us to take seriously again, setting aside all of the socioeconomic stuff, if, if that's even possible, and realize we're supposed to be environmentalists from the get-go. That's what we're here for. So what does that look like? Here, uh, mo- moving on, in, I'm going to move through these passages quickly, but just to underline this, hopefully uh, we'll all end at about the same time. The first offspring, verse uh, 19 of Exodus 34, the first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including the firstborn males of your livestock, whether herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb. If you don't redeem it, break its neck. That sounds harsh until you realize, oh, wait, that's that skull and crossbones on the bottle of poison that warns you warns us. This is, this is danger here. Don't take this trivially. Don't take this lightly. This is a big deal. If, if, if you don't redeem, if you don't understand that firstborn thing is actually God's and symbolic of the rest of the things that flow, the second and third and fourthborn, you've missed the point. It's all God's. We're all stewards. As it turns out, it's his garden. We are stewards of, 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 our, of our children. We are stu- stewards of our places of employment. Look at what he says here in, in verse 19, uh, 20 rather. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying next, but it's really critical that you hear the heartbeat of God. Look at what he says. Six days you shall labor. On the seventh, you shall rest. We love that last phrase. On the seventh, you shall rest. We're not good at it. Do you want to know why? Because we haven't taken the first part of it seriously either. Six days, work as hard as you can. On the seventh, rest. And, and both are, are critical in balance. Even during the plowing season, and the harvest season must rest. Celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest, the festival of ingathering in the turn of the year. So what we call this is tithing, this presentation of the first fruits, this, it, it's, uh, it, it, this idea of a tenth given uh, as a symbol, symbol of the whole. Tithing is not tipping. Tithing is a recognition, oh wait, everything I am and have belongs to God. And so when I don't tithe, for whatever reason, I'm saying, for the most part, I'm the master of my own universe. Well, good luck with that. It's a way of reorienting ourselves. And I don't mean this in any condemning way. Please do not misunderstand me on this. I say this as much as I possibly can as a way of inviting you 
into a stewardship of your whole life that God will be privileged and will privilege with blessing. Get in the flow of what God is doing in this particular way. Um, it, it is work is then both the it, it, sorry tithing is both a a statement of grateful dependence on God, but it's also a way of entering in to the economy of the kingdom. We have dueling economies. Jesus makes this very clear. You you get do you have the kingdom of Mammon, the kingdom of the material world, or do you have the kingdom of God? Each of them has their own economic systems. Anybody feel the pull of the mammon economic system? Anybody feel the pull of the economic system of the kingdom, the household rules, the oikonomia of the kingdom? It's very different. This is why Jesus says if you try and game the system and look in both directions at the same time, that won't work well for you. So choose. And his recommendation, choose the kingdom of God and his righteousness because that will subsume the outcome of the kingdom of the economy, rather, of mammon. All of these other things will be taken care of. But if you go after this, you not only don't get them, because wrath and must, must, wrath, got it. All kind of crap happens over there. Right? So you don't only not get that, you don't get the kingdom either. If you seek the kingdom, you get the kingdom. And oh, by the way, the things you need. So this invitation is to step into a different economic system with Sabbath as the con- in the context of, of work. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 24. It extends it even further. Verse 19, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the immigrant. Leave it for the fatherless and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the immigrant for the fatherless, for the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and that's why I command you to do this. You catch three times. He's saying to us, part of the reason I want you to work is because there are people who can't and need the outcome of your work undeserved. It is a stewardship born of the fact that you once were slaves. You didn't have a choice, but now you have a choice. So utilize the gift I have given you in the land I have provided, which you did not earn and do not deserve. Use that to care for folks who have no resource on their own, who are left out with the trash. I I recognize, obviously, this is is an agricultural image here, but I I wonder if we could, could put our hearts and our minds and our prayers together and consider what would a, a, an economy of gleaning look like in the 21st century? 
where we make a determination that we are simply not going to spend everything that we earn. We're going to leave some of it lying around for undeserving people to pick up, recognizing that none of us deserve. I was having this question, conversation the other day on a classical theodicy. You know what that is, is why do bad things happen to good people? And frankly, I've never been puzzled by that. Not much. You know what puzzles me more? Why do good things happen to anybody? Why do good things happen to anybody? Given our rebellion, given the fact that we all should have been nuked off the planet generations ago, and by the way, that was an option on the table. You just thank, thank God somebody interceded because you're here. And what are you doing with the good things that he has enabled in his generosity? Do, do, do you see, are you, how many of you would love God to be as generous as you are? You're his image, so the reflection ought to go the other way. And we spend so much time. I, I learned this lesson years ago, and I'm still learning it, frankly, I, I, with, with so many of our homeless brothers and sisters, and had cash in my pocket, and, and I, I remember thinking to myself, he or she's just going to spend it on fill-in-the-blanks. And I heard the whisper of the Spirit saying, well, what are you going to spend it on? Why is what you're going to spend it on better than what they're going to spend it on? And by the way, you don't even know their first name. How in the world do you know what they're going to spend it on? And even if you're right, what business is that of yours? It's not your money. So I'm trying not to have that conversation anymore. Anybody else feeling the tension here? When you're harvesting, leave enough for folks who don't even have the capacity to harvest. This generosity in response to what God has given you for those who have limited means, limited opportunity. Here's Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns. On everything you put your hand to, the Lord will bless you in the land he's giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Then, notice this, all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. They take knowledge of you that you've been with Jesus and they will fear you, respect you, honor you. How are we doing, by the way, on that? How's the reputation of the people of God as a generous people in the world today? Not so much. Not so much. Why? Because we haven't paid attention to what he told us to do with the resources he gave us to do it with. 
The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, the crops of the ground, in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, send rain on your land in season, bless the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You see what he's up to here. This is, this is the economy of the kingdom. It's an economy of lending, an economy of giving, an economy of, of generosity that is, that is in, anch- in alignment with the character of God. So work becomes the primary means by which God will bless you. Work becomes the primary means by which God will bless his people. This generative blessing then of the shared with the nations, partial fulfillment. Remember Abraham, Genesis chapter 12? I've called you to be a blessing. Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, among whom we include ourselves in Christ, are to be blessing machines in our culture. Even when uh, the Israelites were in captive, remember in, in that famous passage in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans that I have for you, et cetera, et cetera. Just before that, he says, here's how you get the plans that I have for you. I want you to do good for Babylon. I want you to work as hard in city government for Babylon. I want you to work as hard as you can for the king of Babylon. Daniel, take note. Write it down. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I don't care if they change your names. You boys, get to work. Make that king look good on the national stage. But he's pagan. None of your business. Your business is to be a blessing machine. Oh, that's hard. That's challenging for us especially when you consider the relationship between Israel and Babylon was, it was, was not kind. So he invites us into that, into that kind of prosperity that flows out of this stewardship economy and always points beyond itself. The nations will notice. The nations will pay attention. And, and the goal here is not that you big build, build bigger barns and buy third and fourth houses. The goal is that you have a generosity born of the Father's generosity. This is a stewardship, an economy of stewardship. It is a way of witness to the nations. It's unearned but blessed generosity as a national strategy of redemption. And here's the invitation then, to partner with the Holy Spirit in your work. I will bless your work. That means you gotta be doing some work. And how might he bless it? It might be with an imagination for an intractable problem that you have noodled away on for weeks and months and can't get any solution. I have a friend who just published a book. uh, Who uh, uh, He's a rocket scientist, one of those guys, and was working on a space shuttle a few years ago and bumped into a problem that they couldn't figure out their way around. And God gave him the solution, having prayed about it in a dream, saving millions of dollars in the project. Why? Because Jesus knows stuff about aerospace. (laughs) Why does this surprise us? He knows how to wait tables. What would it look like for the first 10 minutes on the job while you're doing your thing is to invite the awareness of Jesus in the space on the factory floor? to invite the awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence. There's no place that you can be that he isn't. 
You're there. Where two or three gathered in my name, I'm there. Not, not here. Right where you are. So it's this invitation to pay attention to this, to this, um, this context. And Paul, is, he, he, he's bumped into a problem with the hyper-charismatic folks who have uh, uh, come to faith in him that I think I'm going to finish up with here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, now, about your love for one another, we don't need anybody to write you. you you've been taught by God how to love one another. In fact, you, you love all God's family throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers and sisters, keep on keeping on. Do more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands, just as we told you. Why? So that your daily life may win the outsider's respect and so that you won't be dependent on anybody. Anybody need me to unpack that? It's hard to unpack, isn't it? Because it's clear. It's like the passages of Scripture I have the most trouble with are the ones I understand. Make it your business to lead a quiet life. We have a culture of celebrity celebration. The book of Acts is a, is a Cliff's Note version of a highlight reel. It doesn't deal with the people who are putting in the hours on the factory floor. It doesn't deal with the quote-unquote, normal folks. But there were a boatload more of them than the people who got the spotlight. And, 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 and the Paul, Paul is concerned. This is the very first letter he writes. The message of the gospel has come, and people have embraced the reality of Jesus' returning. Therefore, I don't need to work. And they were beginning to drag the church down. They were beginning to... Uh, be the object of a TMZ episode. They were beginning to be the object of, of, of disdain in the community. And Paul is going to go on to say, look, if you don't work, you don't eat. Why, why would he say, oh, Paul, why don't we just pray more? Pray, but work. <laughs> and let your work be prayer. Do, do, do you see what he's inviting them into? He's inviting them into, look, mind your own business. Make an ambition to lead a quiet life. What's your life's ambition? I want to be an accountant. I want to be a, what do you want? And, and by the way, he's probably not going to tell you. Because it's already in you. What do you want to do? Do it. We want God to tell us what to do. He, he can, and sometimes he does, but usually it's like, let's do this together. What do you want to play? Come on, I'm with you. And he invites us into this, 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 this um, reducing of the pressure to conform to a mammon economy by engaged in increasing generosity, so the reputation of Jesus is lifted high. Not just in the songs we sing on Sunday morning, but if you've got a fish on your business card, you ought to be doing top quality work at a fair price and stand behind it. 
Why? Because it's not about you that people are going to be concerned at the end of the day. They'll write you a Yelp review and that'll be that. I want the Yelp review on Jesus to be five stars plus because you as his representative have dealt with the issue well. Please notice this isn't about having a Bible study as you're under somebody's sink fixing the plumbing. This is about fixing the plumbing well in Jesus' name. Jesus knows stuff about plumbing. It's unfortunately not one of the things he shared with me, which is another conversation. Second, Second Thessalonians 3, you know, we want you to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you. We didn't eat anybody's food without paying for it. We worked day and night, laboring, toiling, so that we wouldn't be a burden to anybody. We did this, not because we didn't have the right, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now we're hearing that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down and earn the food you eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of what is doing, of what is good. Apparently, it's easier then as it is now to be a fanatic for Jesus than to be faithful to Jesus. But he calls us to faithfulness in the day-to-day. Then he goes in, finally, in Ephesians chapter 6, using the language of slaves, which would have been an understanding very different from ours. It's hard to translate, but I think you follow along. Let me do it this way. If you're an employee, obey your boss with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not just to win their favor when they're watching you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free, employee or employer. Oh, and by the way, employers, treat your employees in the same way. Don't threaten them. You know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism in him. Here, you get to be boss, and they get to be laborer in the kingdom. There's no hierarchical difference. Live that way. I think the translation uh, it makes, makes sense. So what does it mean for work to become a spiritual discipline, a required practice that we can leverage towards our growth to Christ-likeness? By making the practice of presence. As you step into the boardroom, as you step onto the factory floor, as you step onto the sales floor, as you stock shelves, whatever it is that you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to garden.church. God bless you.